I liked her swagger. I liked her confidence. I liked her wit. I mean, the, the movies, I think, don't get enough credit for how dryly funny they are. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Light hits a pair of cheekbones, and in the shadows, a star is born. In this episode, I'll talk about Dietrich, Crawford, Swanson, and other sirens of the screen with the self-styled siren, Farron Smith Neme. Plus, remembering the projectionist who saved an entire film format as Larry Smith pays tribute to the late John Harvey, rescuer of Cinerama. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. Thanks. Now, this is Nitrateville Radio. Glamour. Say what you want about the development of film as an art form, but we all know what really drove the classic era of movies. The sirens of Hollywood, beautiful people dressing spectacularly, being lit glamorously, and acting gracefully on a big screen. A new generation of film bloggers and writers, mostly female, is reclaiming the glamour and artifice of old stars as a model for self-expression. New York-based Farron Smith Neme is one. She started writing about classic films and stars at her blog, Self-Styled Siren, and then for publications like Film Comment and Sight and Sound. And she's had a place on a number of classic film releases recently, including Kino Lorber's Silent Gloria Swanson releases and Criterion's new Von Sternberg and Dietrich set. You can even see her introducing classic films on the TCM Select part of Filmstruck. I started by asking her about that. They invited me to talk about a group of Joan Crawford movies that they were going to have on, on Filmstruck. And uh, so I, I got to pick from a fairly large assortment. Just they wanted mostly me to talk about Joan, which is something I'm always happy to do. So, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly me jabbering about, uh, you know, what I think of her acting style, the different aspects of her talent that you can see through these five movies. So, did you get to go on the Robert Osborne set? Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, no, no. They they just they have a recording studio that they uh, use occasionally in New York, so that was where I went. But they were super nice, you know. And I did get like a makeup artist, you know, and like uh, you know catering afterwards so yeah you know I, I, I got a, a good part of the experience it was fun 
So what are the movies that you introduced? Um, I did, uh, let's see, I did Grand Hotel, I did A Woman's Face, Mildred Pierce, Humoresque, and The Damned Don't Cry. Any insights that you want to uh, share as a preview uh, about those particular films? Well, the way they did the intros was that they had um, a producer essentially asking me questions and kind of guiding through so that, you know, there was a, and, and it gave an, an arc to my thoughts that I might not have otherwise had. So I was, I was able to start like with uh, Grand Hotel talking about, you know, it's not really early Joan because she had been a star in silent movies, but it's, um, it's kind of the start of her um, first great period in talkies. And it was, uh, it, uh, so I got to talk about how Grand Hotel was significant for her career wise, because it was putting her with um, the biggest GM stars on the lot and saying, okay, you're part of this. You're, you know, one of these people, which I think was you know, psychologically very important for her. And then if you see the movie, um, I think most people agree. Certainly I've always thought she walks away with the movie. She's the best thing in it. Um, she is wonderful as this sort of secretary who's, uh, you know, not not liking being poor and having this life and is having to deal with uh, men like Wallace Beery hitting on her. It's a, a really modern part and she gives it her all. And she was also, I think, like at the, at the height of her beauty at that point too. She's so gorgeous in Grand Hotel. So um, then we, moving along, we um, I went to um, A Woman's Face, which is a movie I saw fairly recently. I mean, it's, it's probably been five or six years now since I, I first saw it. Um, it was, you know, kind of off the radar for a while, but it's a remake of a Ingrid Bergman movie. And it's uh, about this woman who has been horribly scarred by a disfiguring accident in childhood. And it's just kind of uh, warped her character. So she's running a, a den of thieves. And then along comes Conrad Veidt, who um, has an, an idea for a bigger mark, and she falls in love with him. And then along the way, Melvin Douglas, as a plastic surgeon, fixes her face. Um, it's a highly implausible melodramatic plot, but it works exceptionally well. And she gives um, one of her best performances. She was directed by George Cukor. And uh, they always worked very well together. And she liked to say later that when she won an Oscar for Mildred Pierce, that it was also for a woman's face. Mm -hmm. um, so then we moved on to Mildred Pierce, which is, I, I don't know, it, everybody's favorite Joan Crawford movie. It's it's certainly mine. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I should, I should have like uh, some kind of deep, mysterious, different kind of Right. Uh, fa favorite or, or, or whatever. Daisy you know. Kenyon or something. Yeah. Right, right, right. I, you know, I, this is not the hipster choice, but Mildred Pierce, it, she's so good. And the movie works so beautifully. It's not, it's not just her being good. Everybody around her is at, at the absolute top of their game. So that one's always a pleasure to discuss. Um, it's also a movie that I think even people who are maybe aren't into Joan Crawford, aren't into women's pictures or whatever, the story is so good, they tend to get caught up in it anyway. My 15-year-old daughter always says it's her favorite old movie that I've shown her, um, as it's so entertaining. And then um, 
Then there's Humoresque, where she has great chemistry with John Garfield. Uh, I really like the music in that movie. I like the uh, I like the atmosphere. I like the Clifford Odets, you know, like Jewish. Although he's not explicitly identified as Jewish, he, he it but has he's a, John Garfield. So. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's still Garfield. Plus, uh, the family kind of reads as 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 Jewish in, in a lot of ways. So you know, up from the New York City slums to the stage of Carnegie Hall. And with uh, with Joan Crawford as his his nearsighted patroness, and she uh, she has a, a great time with that part too. It's interesting from an acting standpoint to see what she does with the characters nearsighted, how she um, uses the glasses. She doesn't uh, make a lot of obvious choices with it. Actually, she's really quite um, it's quite organic the way she will put them on in certain situations and take them off in others. And then finally, there's The Damn Don't Cry, which um, I guess is, is maybe the, the least well-known of the movies that I picked, but is really interesting as a, kind of a, a noir where she was uh, entering into a different phase of her career where she was playing. Um, she was wi increasingly willing to pe play less sympathetic characters. Um, I mean, I think, I think that you're on her, um, damn, don't cry characters side, Lorna. Um, uh, but you, at the same time, she makes a lot of bad choices and the, the movie doesn't flinch from judging her for that. The character is sort of very loosely based on Virginia Hill, Bugsy Siegel's mall. Um, and, uh, it has a, you know, Steve Cochran at his oily best <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's, um, you know, it's just, it, it's got, um, it's, it's a harsh little movie, you know, it shows her, you know, like living in this vine covered cottage that, uh, is set like right across from a bunch of pumping oil derricks. Yeah. So, you know, it's right from the beginning, it's deliberately, undermining cliches of domesticity. And I, I really like that about it. Um, it's, a, it's a full on noir in a way that maybe Mildred Pierce isn't quite as much. Um, but yeah, so those were the five I picked, such as my love for Joan. I easily could have picked five others, five more, but, yeah. uh, but they, they gave me my choice. So I, I picked some favorites. Well, it's funny that we're talking about Joan Crawford and I just realized I have David Bordwell's reinventing Hollywood next to me. So Joan in sudden fear is staring at me the whole time that we're, Oh, I, we're did, talking I with. would have done jo sudden fear if it was, if it was on Filmstruck, but it was not, I did. I wrote, I wrote a long piece about it for, uh, for film comment online a while ago and, and got to, to talk about how great she is in that. Cause it was, it was recently restored and it had a, it had like a week long run at film forum. And then I think it did so well. It, it was held over as it's uh, it, it's another movie that still plays very well to this day. Men are like that. They want all the conveniences and none of the difficulties. What did you think about? I thought about us. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? I don't care what you believe. I'd like to slap your face. Why don't you try it? Well, let's talk about how you got, um, you know, you're just one of those people whose name I started seeing all over the place. Um, 
And it's interesting that you, you look at it in terms of you're talking about Joan Crawford and her stardom. And, of course, your blog is called Self-Styled Siren, not Self-Styled Studio Exec or Self-Styled, <laughs> uh, you know, Director of Photography. Um, so, yeah, tell me tell me how you got interested in classic movies and how that led to all this. Well, I class, classic film was just a, a part of my life from a very early part of my childhood. I grew up at a time when cable television was still using classic films to fill in all kinds of holes in their programming or whatever. The airwaves were just kind of saturated with them. There was one station, I don't remember which one, that would run like classic movies every morning. There was another station that would do it every afternoon. And then um, on Sunday, you had like the Superstation doing a Academy Award theater. So um, it was a you know, pretty good time to be a classic movie fan in, in, in terms of getting to see a lot of stuff, although um, it took me years to realize how badly chopped up and altered a lot of the films I had loved were. Um, you know, but, but still, it was, it was an, an introduction. You know, to, to this day, I'm not super, super picky about the condition of films that I watch. Because that you know, the, I I grew up kind of seeing them in crappy right. versions anyway. So I've talked to you know people who are involved, like in the the film restoration community or, or whatever, who worry that uh, Blu-ray, and DCP, and things like that are are kind of a double-edged sword. Because uh, according to them, you know, there's a number of movies, some of them very very good, that are just never going to look that great because what's left of them doesn't look that great. Right. Um, so, you know, if everybody, you know, gets used to seeing them this way and thinks, you know, this is the only way to look at an old movie, then you may be reducing the chances that some of the, you know, more beat up things are, are going to find an audience. Um, I mean, at, at this point, my attitude is, you know, just, just getting anybody to watch something old, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we can work on the other stuff later on. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so so I, you know, I, I grew up watching a lot of this stuff, um, I, uh, and I developed a taste for it. It, you know, it, just for, from the second I started watching old movies, I, I, there was something in them that spoke to me, something about the rhythms uh, and the, the look and the sounds of, of the films that I connected with right off the bat. Nobody had to coax me. <laughs> um, life went on, um, you know, like it went into to journalism, I got married, I had kids, we moved to Toronto. Um, I was at home with the kids and I, I was in, I was thinking of starting a blog, I wanted something to keep up my writing. And uh, some of my friends were starting blogs, some of them were, you know, doing like mommy blogs, which I was not willing to do because I'm sort of a, you know, private type person. And there were also people doing really great fragrance blogs, makeup blogs, fashion blogs. Um, they were all much better at that than I was. So I thought, well, okay, one subject that I can blab about pretty well is classic films. So that was what I started writing about. And gradually over time, it just it got an audience for which I remain quite grateful. 
do you have any idea who was reading it and how that audience built? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it's funny. This this was like the gold rush days of blogs, right? <laughs> Everybody was having a blog, and uh, and people were really going around to different blogs and trying to find different blogs and and leaving comments and things. Now you see a lot of that interaction on social media. Twitter and and um, Facebook have almost kind of killed blog comment sections to a, to a certain extent. But yeah, no, I mean people like um, Lance Mannion, um, who's like a politics slash culture blogger discovered something I did that had a bit about uh, about my darling Clementine. Um, Jim Walcott of Vanity Fair read a piece that I had done on um, on Kate Francis and linked to it and you know and linked uh, again to some other stuff in the future and I know that um, a whacking big percentage of my of my readers I, I must have owed to him sending them my way um, and I guess you know like a lot of other film writers um, started reading as well and I was reading their stuff like Kim Morgan or Sheila O'Malley or whatever and it, it eventually you know I, I don't know I mean I guess you would need like um, <clears throat> a, a mathematical like cell division right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah so in it it became uh, something that I was also able to do and get paid for for various outlets too, which is something I, I also remain very grateful for. Yeah, so you've written for Film Comment, uh, do an online blog there. Uh, I don't know what else. Uh, where else do we typically see you? Um, I've, I've written. I've written for Sight and Sound. Um, I've written. For um, I've written a fair amount for Criterion for their blog and and for various uh, like booklet inserts. I've been doing a fair number of those actually. I've also done like at least one for Film Movement. I've done some for uh, I've done some for Arrow. Uh, last year I did um, I did the narration for a video essay on the dramatic roles of Ginger Rogers um, for a, as a supplement to their release of Borzegi's Magnificent Doll, which she is surprisingly quite good in. And that was a wonderful experience. I spent like two months just like, you know, watching Ginger Rogers after Ginger Rogers, mostly in her dramatic roles. Um, and she was really good in a lot of them and it was a, a pleasure to write about and then they linked up my my musings to a bunch of really good clips and it turned out really well but um it's a it's a region two release though so i don't know how how many yeah. of <laughs> how many americans have seen it or, or have access to it i would love to be able to throw it up online sometime because i i did really like doing it <laughs> Do you expect to stay in Shanghai for a while? I don't know. Then we ought to see each other a lot. Perhaps. All right, so yeah, you mentioned Criterion and uh, people getting their copies of the von Sternberg Dietrich set, which, as we record, comes out tomorrow. 
you're in the booklet in that, I guess. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know what you do in the booklet. Tell me about that project. This this project was so exciting. I mean, I'm on Twitter a fair bit. There's a lot of people who will follow like the Criterion announcements, and you know, almost every time they did another one of their announcements, there would be somebody out there going, "Oh, are they ever going to do von Sternberg?" <laughs> uh, and I and I was with them. You know, <laughs> it's like I love those movies too, and they they have circulated in some pretty poor looking versions. Everybody was really eager to have von Sternberg, just a supremely beautiful visual um, director, along with, you know, Marlena Dietrich, one of the most beautiful women ever to have a camera pointed at her. And to have that get the criterion treatment was something I think everybody really, really wanted. So they, uh, they came to me and they said they were doing the set. And I was like, Oh, my God, yes, I'm in, I'm in. Um, so uh, they kind of uh, divvied it up three different ways in the booklet. So um, Imogen Sarah Smith, really, really good um, film writer, is doing a consideration of Dietrich and her essentialness to the films. Uh, Gary Giddens, another very fine writer, biographies and on jazz, um, has written about uh, von Sternberg himself and his direction. And what they asked me to do was they said, um, we would like something about the people who weren't Dietrich and weren't von Sternberg, the people who contributed to the movies kind of behind the scenes, you know, the, the, the hidden figures of the movies, if, if you will. Um, so I, what I wrote about was like the, the cinematographers. I wrote about um, Jules, uh, Jules Firthman, the, uh, the screenwriter for a number of them, Hans Dreyer, um, who built uh, a lot of the fantastic sets and art decoration that you see throughout, and also a woman named Dorothy Ponadel, who was um, Dietrich's makeup artist at the time, one of the only female makeup artists in Hollywood, who helped create you know, that incredible immortal face, the, the very distinctive look of, of Dietrich's makeup during the, uh, <clears throat> during the movies. Oh, and also Travis Banton whose costumes are also very important to the look of the film. So um, it was, it took a lot of research. <laughs> um, it was not especially easy to dig up the story of a lot of these people, right? You want to write about the star, you've got plenty. You want to write about the director. You've also, you know, got a, a fairly nice set of, of things that they've said and things that have been written over the years. You want to write about some of these behind the scenes people. You know, I mean, that wasn't very common to have them written about. So, it was a, a, a big project, but I'm pretty proud of the results. I hope people like it. And the films do look great. Well, let's talk about the cinematographers in particular. Offhand, I don't know who they were for the different films, but in any case, you know, von Sternberg is such a distinctive visual stylist and had, you know, clearly his own ideas and his own ability to accomplish them. So what was it like being von Sternberg's cinematographer on these pictures? 
Well, I, I mean, I think um, like uh, Lee Lee Garms was one of them, and and he um, he I believe like claimed to have come up, you know, with the the distinctive style of of lighting for um, for Marlena Dietrich. Basically, von Sternberg was uh, a, an absolute dictator on his sets, right? And so it, I wrote less about the cinematographers maybe than some of the others because their input is hard to ascertain, right? Because uh, because von Sternberg himself was, he was admitted to the Society of, of Cinematographers, right? He actually got an Oscar nomination for one of the films, which I can't remember because I don't have it in front of me. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, I, think, um, I think it might've been The Devil is a Woman, but he, was you know the the guy who was determining like the how the light and things were going to look on a lot of the stuff and basically the cinematographer's job was just to to follow his instructions to the letter yes you know he's he's giving instructions or whatever it still takes talent to sort of fulfill that right right um, so, somebody like dryer or even Ponadel probably had more input in the first place, trying to, to help him uh, achieve what his vision was for these movies. And I, I, t I talk about that in the essay too. I talk about how um, Sternberg, he was, you know, egotistical and he uh, was was reluctant to sort of admit, you know, that, that he had anybody working on these movies. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so uh, on, on the other hand, he very genuinely was an auteur um, and he very genuinely did have, you know, like micromanaging control of a lot of the aspects of the film. So that was another thing that I spent a lot of time doing, trying to disentangle exactly what these people were doing. This is an interesting set of films. I personally, it took me a long time to warm to them. I think when I first saw them, you know, in high school and college, they were just too out there, too arch. You know, I, I, I think my, my mentality wanted a smooth moving Warner Brothers picture and they were so Baroque by comparison. Um, I feel like it's the last one, Devil is a Woman, that finally kind of won me over because it was, you know, it was sort of his summation of his feelings about it. It's it's about a guy who recognizes how much he was under a woman's sway and imagines himself her victim. How do you feel about, you know, this as a body of work and as as a evolution from the first one to the last? Oh, I, I, I've always loved these movies. I probably, like, my on-ramp was almost definitely um, Marlene Dietrich. You know, I mean, as as... Looking at her, you know, as a young woman, and just seeing her as the embodiment of, of a, a kind of femininity that, you know, was was, you know, kind of idealized to an incredible degree. And all, but also, um, you know, I mean, I liked, uh, I liked, I liked her swagger. I liked her confidence. I liked her wit. I mean, the the movies I think don't get enough credit for how dryly funny they are in a lot of ways. Um, uh, unquestionably, my favorite is Shanghai Express, which just has that superb setting 
and uh, you know all of these amazing character actors drifting around, and uh, a, a brilliant sort of foil for Dietrich in the person of Anna Mae Wong, um, who is you know in some ways the, the the heart of the movie. And I really really loved Shanghai Express. I always really loved Morocco. Um, it's interesting you would say the the devil is a, a woman because um, I mean it, I, I, fi I find that movie enjoyable, but it, it really is like the most stylized out there of all of the movies. You know, it, it's it it doesn't seem to be taking place in on the same plane of reality that I inhabit when I watch it. Um, I'm also extremely fond of The Scarlet Empress, which um, when I programmed uh, Shadows of Russia for TCM with Lou Luminick, that was one of the selections. It was one of my favorite movies in the whole thing. It, um, I don't think anybody would want to point to it as a good primer on, uh, on Russian history, but it looks amazing. It, it's, it's, uh, it's about a, a fantasy Russia, right? Um, and that's, that's a really amazing movie too. Um, I, I hadn't seen Dishonored in years. That was maybe like the least seen of the movies for a long time. And I, I like, I like that one quite a lot. Um, it feels very pre-code with her, like, you know, basically as a street walker in the beginning and then using her sexual wiles to like pry secrets out of men. And, uh, and I also, um, I also, I also like Blonde Venus. Blonde Venus kind of has this it's one of the only movies where you'll see Dietrich as a mother doing this kind of ersatz uh, Stella Dallas routine with her little boy. Um, but I'm, you know, really, I like all of them. You know, I, I could, I could probably rank them, you know, from like most favorite to least favorite. But even when you get down to like the devil is a woman, that's still a, a movie that I have a lot of uh, aesthetic appreciation for. Well, we talked about uh, Sternberg and Dietrich. Let's talk about a different silent siren, uh, Gloria Swanson, who has had three releases of films of hers directed by Alan Dwan from Kino Lorber in the last year or so, um, Zaza, Stage Struck, and Manhandled. And you did, what'd you do? Well, um, for I for for the Kino Lorber release, I wrote about um, Stage Struck, which I saw at MoMA during their Alan Dwan Festival, and uh, they did a huge retrospective where I got to see a lot of uh, Dwan that I hadn't seen and that doesn't pop up that often. And so I saw Stage Struck there; it looked absolutely terrific. Um, and uh, <clears throat> Then um, I also, though, wrote about manhandled for a big dossier on Alan Dwan that a bunch of film writers uh, put together. Um, uh, Gina Telleroli was one of the editors on it, and so I, I have an essay in there. And it's available online, but... Um, you kind of have to know where to look for it. <laughs> so... Um, 
And yeah, so I, I wrote about those two. And um, Zaza, actually, I reviewed for Film Comment. So I kind of got to see all of them. I, I was so happy that these films are, are getting released because they show a completely different side to Swanson. Um, she was really funny. You know, she had great top comic timing. Um, and she, uh, you know, she doesn't condescend to these, you know, like shop girl pancake flipping characters. <laughs> she, uh, she, she plays them with like great warmth and spontaneity. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm really, really glad they're out there. Um, there's a, a number of other Swanson films that are lost or that only exist in, in fragments. I'm sure I don't have to tell the denizens of Nitrateville about <laughs> that. But it's, it's, it's very good news that these are out there, you know, after sort of being really hard to see for such a long time. I, I, spent, I disappeared down a rabbit hole with, uh, with Manhandled for a while, trying to figure out what happened to uh, to the Charlie Chaplin imitation that she, you know, supposedly did in it, you know, that inspired the one that you see her doing so well in, in Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, and I guess, um, like, the, the she herself in, in an interview, I think in People Will Talk, John Cobalt's book of interviews, right. talks about how it, it was missing now and they couldn't find it. And I was like, oh, damn it. Um, and I guess the, the best guess is that a lot of the old silent movies, they would chop them up, you know, to use like different pieces, you know, for like funny little, you know, sort of <clears throat> shorts or, or whatever. So at some point they chopped out her Chaplin bit and nobody ever found it again. I keep hoping it's going to turn up. And at the time um, I was working on the piece for the dossier, I knew like, um, several people who were kind of actively trying to find it, but so far, no luck. If anybody is listening, <laughs> go to your closet. <laughs> yeah. like, so. Well, it's funny. We just watched uh, Sunset Boulevard uh, with my teenage sons, uh, who really enjoyed it. But it's interesting. Swanson kind of Marion Davies, Susan Alexander caned herself with uh -huh. that role because she... She portrays it as if she only ever did, you know, the exotic walking a leopard on a leash type roles. Yeah. And, you know, even... <laughs> the leopard walking roles. I'm yeah. going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and that's true. But even in DeMille, where she, she'll do that sometimes, but she's usually playing a housewife and that's a fantasy scene. Um, I'm sure there are films where she did that outright, but but she's more of a comedian, very much like Joan Crawford, really, in that she sort of, she was the shop girl's fantasy. You could still see the shop girl in her, even as she's putting on the grander outfits. I think uh, Stage Truff is a perfect example of that, because yeah. you very much, she she has a working class, everyday kind of life, but this vivid fantasy life that even goes into Technicolor. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I also, um, I mean, I think as, as much as I adore Sunset Boulevard, uh, the kind of, the kind of picture 
it gives of, uh, of, of silent movies is maybe not all altogether fair. <laughs> yeah. Just, just, just in general. I mean, even the, the wax works on John McElwee, uh, once did a, an article about Sunset Boulevard where he talked about the, about how, um, actually, you know, H.B. Warner and, um, and, uh, uh, Nielsen and, um, and, and, even Keaton weren't, you know, doing all that bad at the time, and uh, how you know the the movie is just very wedded to this narrative of everybody as sad has been. So Swanson herself was nothing of the sort um, at, at that time. So it's um, it's kind of like uh, Singing in the Rain, in that they're both absolutely absolute masterpieces that like all kinds of Hollywood history don't tell the real story. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's, it's more than the, the fact that the time had passed because it's not really that much time. It's, you know, not even 25 years since her time at Paramount, according to the film, but it's just such a cultural change. You went from the twenties to the depression to world war two. I mean, I can see why the twenties seemed like they were five lifetimes ago at that point. And that's how the movie kind of portrays them. But then the real people are still around and working. Yeah. And, and, and Billy Wilder does let Norma Desmond, you know, say her piece, you know, then they opened their mouth and out came talk, talk, talk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, and, and, and she's got a point. And I think the movie is telling you she's got a point. So, uh, so it's, it, he doesn't, you know, completely kind of erase the past there. Well, and as, as I just wrote it, Nitrieville, I mean, the best scene in the movie, the, the scene that just where it finally reaches the ecstasy possible in film is when Wilder stops directing and lets Max von Meierling take over and she moves oh, yeah. in for a close-up. And it's just the magic of silent film comes shouting through the picture at that point, no matter what all this talk has been about. True. Very true. All right, well, let's talk about, I mean, here we've been talking about big stars. Uh, talk about one more favorite of yours that nobody knows. I mean, I'm, I'm surely I'm the only person in the entire world who acted on it by ordering a DVD from Czechoslovakia for it. <laughs> which oh, is Tonka yeah. of the Gallows. Tell me I, what I, the I, heck this is. Okay, I have to I have to give credit where it's due here. Um, I saw that movie because Dave Kerr of the Museum of Modern Art programmed um, with the um, the Film Institute of, of Czechoslovakia. They programmed uh, a series of Czech film, right? Um, before the Czech New Wave, Czechoslovakia like. France um, had a, a really great resurgence in new wave in the 60s that kind of sucked up all the oxygen in the in the room and um, may have made people forget or neglect um, uh, an earlier thriving film industry that produced um, great films in its own right. And so of this series that Dave had programmed with the Czech Film Institute, uh, the, the one that he was really high on was Tonka of the Gallows. Um, and uh, I saw it and I was just absolutely blown away. Um, the beauty of the film, um, Dave had, had compared it to me to, to Sunrise, which I, I, th I thought was fair, you know, and when you have a, 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 a tenable comparison to Sunrise, what you have is a pretty good movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, 
Uh, yeah, the, the imagery of it, the superb um, lead performance by Ida Rina, who's, uh, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing properly. Um, she's so amazingly good in this movie. It's, it's a really varied, subtle, emotional performance. And it's, you know, a, a, a real, it's a real tragedy, right? Um, it's, it's much easier, I find, um, you may disagree, but I find that it's much easier to get people to watch silent comedies. Um, sure. They, uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the silent dramas, um, and especially the ones that, that in, aspire, as this one does, you know, to, to like real tragedy, are harder to get people to see. But I feel very strongly that this movie is so um, well acted and so beautiful to look at that even, um, you know, a more jaded modern audience, you know, could let itself get swept away by it. I did, like, get persuade several people on Twitter and elsewhere to watch it. Sheila O'Malley watched it and really thought it was, was brilliant. Um, Victor Morton and, and some, some other people there, there were a few who maybe, um, you know, had a, a bit of a, a problem with, uh, you know, the fallen woman kind of theme, but, uh, but I, I don't know. It, it works for me from beginning to end. Criterion's von Sternberg and Dietrich set, and Kino Lorber's releases of Zaza, Manhandled, and Stagestruck are all out now. And there's even a decent enough copy of Tonka of the Gallows that you can order from the Czech Republic. I'll have links for all of those, and for some of the writing that Farron Smith Neme talked about in our interview, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Okay, now before we pull back the curtains and expand the oral landscape of Nitrateville Radio... Let me just make a quick plug. So, if you like this podcast, there's a few different ways you can support it and bring more folks who like old movies into the fold. First, you can go to iTunes, log in, and leave us a rating and a review. That raises our visibility among folks listening to other old movie podcasts. Second, you can share it on social media. Like the Nitrateville page at Facebook, follow at Nitrateville at Twitter, and share what you see there in any other old movie social circles you move in, you socialite you. And finally, why not come visit us at nitrateville.com and participate in chit-chat and occasionally higher discussion about the classic age of movies. It's easy, free, and, well, as friendly as the internet gets these days. Really, we try to keep it a nice, annoyances of 2018 free place. So check it out. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, this is Cinerama. Years ago, I wrote or compiled a book about movie awards. Counting box office gold is the best award of all for many in the movie biz. 
Compiling box office receipts, I realized that a whole set of the highest grossing movies of the 50s and early 60s were effectively lost films. At least, you couldn't see them the way people saw them then. I'm talking about the Cinerama films, the legendary three projector travelogues that created the biggest image anyone had ever seen and led to the widescreen format revolution. As it turned out, just a few years later, in 1998, I actually had a chance to see This is Cinerama and How the West Was Won in true three-projector Cinerama at the New Neon Theater in Dayton, Ohio. While there, I first met my friend Larry Smith, the theater's manager, who now works for the Packard Center of the Library of Congress. Larry had teamed up with a projectionist in Dayton, John Harvey, who had somehow amassed a Cinerama film collection and installed the technically complex projection setup in his living room, reviving the dead format for the first time in over 30 years. John Harvey passed away in May of this year. At Cinevent in May, I spoke with Larry Smith about his friend and the unexpected second coming of one of cinema's true sensations. This wonderful guy that I, I knew and loved for decades was John Harvey. And John Harvey was dedicated to Cinerama his dad had taken him to a screening in 1953 when it opened in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, his dad was a fan of Lowell Thomas and had heard that Lowell Thomas was connected with this film, but they had to go to another city to see it in a theater that had been retrofitted for the giant three projector, deeply curved screen presentation. And it changed his life. He, he literally was interested in movies but that was as good as he'd ever seen. And if anybody's seen it that way, they'll know it's not like any other widescreen presentation. People today say, oh, it's like IMAX. No, no, IMAX is a different process, different presentation. It actually was photographed at a 155 degree curved angle using not just one camera to capture a wide image, but by capturing it from the, the different angles, 55 degrees, off from each one and playing it on a curved screen so that literally the images are coming at you on the sides as well as straight ahead. The closest thing I can compare it to is if you could see a 3D film without wearing 3D glasses. <laughs> it immerses you. You have a, a gut reaction when you're watching it because that's the way your back of your eyeball is curved and that's why IMAX is not at all like Cinerama. So, how did this guy do it in his home? That's, that's <laughs> well, what's so, so John, John uh, got hooked on movies when he worked uh, with his brother, who was a flashlight boy at drive-ins. He got hooked on not what was on screen, but that little tube of light coming out of the building. What was behind that window? He got hooked on being a projectionist in the 50s. So he saw uh, the robe come in in 1953, Cinemascope, which was anamorphically squeezing the picture and spreading it out. He saw uh, Oklahoma come out in 70 millimeter, which is a lot sharper, richer picture. Again, more than uh, two times as wide as it was tall. Um, all these different processes, the, the Natural Vision 3D, 1953, uh, you know, Boana Devil, uh, great effects, lousy movie. He saw all those come in, and he became a union projectionist. In the early 60s, it opened at the Daybell Cinema in Dayton, Ohio, and he was one of the five men that it required to run true Cinerama. 
There's three projectors. You have a man on each projector. There's a man on sound, making sure the sound reel-to-reel was playing back correctly. And then I love this part. The fifth man sat in the auditorium with the audience with a microphone and a headset, and he would tell the other four men, you need to adjust focus, you need to raise your image, you need to take down the bass. He tweaked it as it ran so it would sound and look the best it could. Which is what's truly amazing to me, the idea that the movie theater cares at all what's actually being shown on the screen. I mean, that's, that's the part that you can't reproduce today. <laughs> Nowadays, the people who run the popcorn stand push that one greasy button that starts the digital image. And, yeah. and it, there it is. I mean, it is what it is. But um, I, sh- I should say that uh, our own projectionists here at Cinevent are, are <laughs> dedicated and we're working uh, beyond the call of duty on some shorts we just saw that uh, had some had some serious warpage as they tried to get to the sound head. When the, when so, the festival is over, they will have war stories to tell their grandkids about it, yeah, <laughs> how tough it was to project those old prints. But thank God they do, because we are watching movies we've never seen before. Yeah. And looking at those prints may never see again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And may not always be a bad thing. Um, <laughs> what you were asking, <laughs> but but John Harvey to get back to John Harvey. Yeah. So okay. So John Harvey was a Cinerama projectionist in the early '60s. Saw the uh, films come through that theater. What would usually happen is after the theater was converted, they would send the parade of other titles. They would open with this as Cinerama to show how it worked. Then they would show like How the West Was Won, which is what everybody was coming to see with all the big movie stars. But the other prints were sitting there, and they could play the other five travelogues and Windjammer and Wonderful War of the Brothers Grimm. But then uh, Mad World came along in 70 millimeter, greatest story ever told, made in 70 millimeter, but they paid to use the logo, that little red and white and blue Cinerama logo. They paid for the reputation, but they didn't use the process. And John saw them take out all the Cinerama equipment, and they gave him the trailer, the three-panel trailer for How the West Was Won, and he kept it in his basement. And as, you know, movies progressed, Cinerama got to be forgotten, and it kind of haunted him, those reels sitting up on the shelf, and he decided he would find the equipment, put it back together until he could himself play that trailer. (laughs) So he did. In his basement, he built a curved screen, he found uh, two projectors in Kentucky. I forget where the third one came from now. But they are six-perf pull-down, and instead of 24 frames, they're 26 frames per second. And the reel-to-reel sound recorder is massive. It's over six feet tall, the playback just for the sound. In his basement, he loved the way it looked, but you know most basements aren't very high, and he wanted a taller screen. About this time, his wife and he decided to get a divorce. He claims it was completely different matters, but a lot of people think the wife just couldn't take all the uh, movie stuff. Well, he went to the first floor in his bricks, uh, one-story home, knocked out two bedrooms, half of the kitchen, half of the living room, punched through the ceiling, and installed a Cinerama theater in his home with a 20, I think it's 21 feet round the curve uh, screen um, and a 10-foot tall screen and played Cinerama in his home. And that's where I saw it, as well as hundreds of other people. His home theater would seat 18 people. And he would introduce and run the show as a single man. He automated the system 
where you can sync up everything and just push one button to make it run. Wow. All right, so, uh, and let's talk about the screen for a second, because you say curved screen, Mm -hmm. but it's not like it's one piece. It's hundreds of pieces. Yeah, um, they discovered this deeply curved screen to give you the peripheral vision of the same curves the back of your eyeball. Light reflected from the far left side to the far right side would wash out the image. So they intentionally cut the ribbon, the screen, into these like one inch wide ribbons and would aim them towards the center of the room to aim the light, picture the focus, to cut out the cross uh, reflection. Well, by aiming the light, you got a lot more brightness, color, clarity. So this deeply curved, 55 degree curved screen, aim the light back at the audience, you get this vivid picture that you are actually inside the action. But installing a Cinerama screen meant putting up and calibrating hundreds of strips of screen. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a, an incredible job of engineering. Fred Waller, who invented Cinerama, of all things, his claim to fame was he invented water skis. <laughs> well, he made enough money off the water skis, and, and in the early days, his partners were two guys you might have heard of. Um, Louis B. Mayer was a partner with him after he left MGM, and uh, Mike Todd, the promoter. Um, they helped finance this incredible system. Hmm. All right, so he's showing these in his home, and mm-hmm. and uh, you see them. And were you running the neon theater? No, no, neon? this is the early 80s, and I was just a film buff uh, at the time. I hadn't really gotten into the... Uh, I hadn't been bitten by the bug where I had to be in the business yet. But um, in the early 80s, he was contacted by a museum in England, Bradford, England, Pictureville. They wanted to install a Cinerama theater, and they hired him because he had done it in his home to help them retrofit uh, one of the theaters in this museum in Bradford, England, so they could play Cinerama. And he hooked up with a friend of his, Willem Bomeister, who lives in Holland, who was an IMAX technician who was also nuts about Cinerama. And they found projectors over in Europe, and they custom-built the screen. And I've seen the pictures of John Harvey at the top of the screen and Willem Bomeister at the bottom, attaching those ribbons one at a time for weeks. To cover this giant curved screen, and so that was the first public screening of Cinerama, not counting John Harvey's living room for in like thirty years. Thirty years, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then how did it become an actual public event in Dayton, Ohio? Well, I at that time uh, had started working in a repertory cinema, and John Harvey was my projectionist. He was my theater technician, and. I would want to do special showings, like I wanted to play Lawrence of Arabia in 1989, the director's cut in 70. Well, we traded him our brand new projectors for old Century JJs, which could play 35 and 70. And John, from midnight one night till 9 o'clock the next morning, took out the old projector, pardon me, the new projector, put in the old projectors (laughs) so we could play 70 millimeter. And then I wanted to do 3D. He custom built a silver screen and frame that would flip up against the ceiling. If I wanted to play widescreen, I could play it on the wide white screen. If I wanted to play something in 133 format, we would flip down using cables and pulleys the silver screen, and we could play interlock two projector 3D. The interlock that is used for two projectors to play simultaneously two prints is the same technology, a Selsun motor that interlocks the Cinerama theater 
projectors. And it's downright easy, just two projectors as opposed to three. Well, it's, it's twice as much trouble to make everything work, and you've got to keep the print in frame-by-frame frame sequence throughout the film or people will get a headache. Yeah. Well, Cinerama, you've got to keep all three projectors in perfect frame-by-frame frame interlock for about a mile's length of film. It's a phenomenal. All right, so when did you start doing Cinerama showings? Oh, we started in, in 96, started playing. We got permission from our landlord to alter the building after we had 1,400 people write letters saying they would buy tickets. <laughs> uh, we spent a month converting the, the theater, and it was uh, mostly John Harvey's money. He had the prints. He had the equipment. He had to go buy the lumber to build the frame. Huh because my partners would not put up any money. They would only give permission for us to take out 88 seats and one-third of the ceiling. So let's talk about the prints part, because that's not a small thing. Where did he find these films? I mean, they basically, Cinerama was effectively lost for years and years. Well, when people heard that he had the Cinerama Theater in his home, uh, word kind of spread quietly between collectors like Wildfire. If you have any Cinerama film, I know a guy who can play it. And he would borrow prints, bits and pieces of them, and he helped merge prints together. So he started playing patchwork prints, but that looked incredible. You could still get the experience. He had at one time Pink or Eastman prints of uh, Cinerama Holiday and Seven Wonders of the World. The Seven Wonders of the World came with a German soundtrack. We had to <laughs> pay a gentleman in Australia who had an English soundtrack to dub for us the soundtrack, and John then had to sync it up. Well, I remember, I think this is Cinerama, at one point one of the panels had like Dutch subtitles or something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Well, that was, that was kind of the best he could find. Yeah. Um, as the word got out that he had what he had, people sent him better pieces. Um, he eventually owned, uh, this is Cinerama, an IB Technicolor print, and How the West Was Won, an IB Technicolor print. But for years, I think the first time I saw How the West Was Won in his home, there would be water damage at the bottom of the screen during certain scenes. But he was able to fix those scenes eventually. So how long did uh, this run of Cinerama at the new Neon? Well, we got permission for two months, and I said as long as people bought tickets, we'll need to extend the run. And the run ran three and a half years. During that time, um, there was enough interest stirred up in Cinerama that the Dome in Los Angeles... Uh, contacted John Harvey about what would it take to, for the first time, install three projector Cinerama at the Dome. Because the Dome was built at the de- at the end of it, right? The Dome opened with its mad world, and it never played three projector. People saw 2001 and 70 millimeter. Great story we're told. Cinerama Battle of the Bulge, 70 millimeter Cinerama, all with the Cinerama logo, not realizing they weren't seeing the real process. There's ultra Panavision or super, one of those. A lot of them were, yes, just 70 millimeter or super Anamorphic 70 millimeter gave you somewhat similar, at least as high width as you got out of a single piece of film. It could cover the area (laughs) on a flat screen. Some of them played well on on a curved screen. They used the Cinerama screen. And the uh, Seattle Cinerama Theater. Paul Allen, who was a Microsoft founder, um, helped helped uh, restore that theater and John went out there and ran his prints for the Seattle Film Festival he was on Baker, I was on Abel and a good friend of ours, Gunther uh, he used to work for Cinerama was on Charlie (laughs) 
took three men to run it in Cinerama and Seattle. Yeah. All right, so that was the second heyday of Cinerama, really. Yeah. Uh, and John got older, and, and we're talking about this because he passed away recently. Mm-hmm. Um, his print, I know a lot of his memorabilia and, and equipment was sold off. Um, after we stopped playing it at the Neon, John's full-time job was taking care of other theaters. Um, unfortunately, at that time, he had a stroke, which led to another stroke. It ended up being six strokes in a row. Um, and his wife, uh, God bless her as much as she cared and loved John, panicked and sold his prints and equipment. And uh, eventually he lived in a nursing home for about 20 years where we stayed in touch and swapped stories. And uh, people around the world got to see Cinerama because of him. Bradford, England decided to do a lifetime tribute to him about five years ago and we went over to England and he got a standing ovation and thanks from thousands of Cinerama fans for all the hard work he did. One of the nice things about John was that uh, he wasn't in it for the money. He was in it for that thrill of someone seeing Cinerama in person on a curved screen run through three projectors and they would walk out of the auditorium and be looking for them with their face aglow. They had never seen anything like it and it took his dedication. And one of his early fans was a man by the name of David Strohmeyer, who John handed the torch off to him, and David Strohmeyer has now restored all the Cinerama films and put all of them out on DVD and Blu-ray, except for The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, and he's going to do that one next. Oh, okay. But that'll be the last, the seven films that were made in Cinerama. Plus some of those other processes like... Uh Windjammer and Cinema Miracle. Yeah, yeah. We just did that. He cooperated with the Library of Congress providing some material, and David Strohmeyer, God bless him, has continued to you know, preach the, the value of cinema preservation, and especially Cinerama. Thanks to my guests, Farron Smith Nemi and Larry Smith. And once again, thanks to Cinevent for letting me run around with a recorder. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. The glamorous music for the first segment is by Brad Van Donsel, with a snippet of Andrew Simpson's music for Stage Struck with Gloria Swanson thrown in there. And of course, there was a little Johann Strauss, which before it accompanied spinning space stations, accompanied a spinning Ferris wheel in Cinerama Holiday. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss a new episode. And if you are new here, check out past episodes too. I mean, it's not like episodes about old movies are going to get any more out of date, right? I'll be back with a new one in a few weeks. Thanks. <laughs>